good versus evil. Glory to thee, O Lord, on high, O maker of all that is holy and true. Over creation your rule will apply, divinely inspired in all that you do. Veil of perfection shattered in two, evoked by the one who gave us breath, vanquished from high, yet spared from death. Into the depths this dark angel fell, left unopposed as the ruler of hell. Doom and Gloom Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. This is Dana, and in today's episode, JR and I will be looking at the worst mass shooting in Connecticut history. This is the story of Deadly Brew, mass murder at the Hartford Distributors. It was August 3, 2010, and residents of Manchester, Connecticut were enjoying a warm, sunny summer day. On the north part of town was the Hartford Distributors, one of the state's largest wholesalers of beer and wine, was founded in 1944 and has been owned and operated by the Hollander family since the 1960s. The company had moved a few miles east from East Hartford to Manchester in 1994. It was 7 a.m., the busiest time at the 77,000-foot plant, with the day shift coming on. Omar Thornton, a driver with the company for the last two years, came in for a disciplinary hearing. He was dressed in black shorts and a black Rocky t-shirt and carried a red metal lunchbox. He walked to the kitchenette and set his lunchbox down and walked into the hearing next door with his union rep. Thornton was shown a video of him selling beer off his truck while making deliveries. He was given the choice of resigning or being fired. He quietly signed the resignation letter. At the hearing was Teamsters Local 1035 President Brian Sirigliano, Stephen Hollander, the company's Chief Financial Officer, and Louis Felder, Director of Operations. The hearing ended in the corner office sometime before 7.25 a.m. Thornton and Sirigliano left the room, and Thornton said he wanted to get a drink of water in the kitchen next door. When he went into the kitchen, he pulled out two 9mm Ruger pistols from his lunchbox and came out into the hallway shooting. Felder was killed instantly, and Hollander was shot twice, grazing wounds to the arm and head. Sirigliano tried to stop Thornton as he opened fire on Hollander and Felder. Thornton turned and shot Sirigliano in the head, killing him instantly. Hollander retreated to an office and called 911. 911, I need the cops here at McCarthy Strippers right away, shooting. What's going on? Who got Somebody shot? got shot. I got shot. Who's the person shooting people again? His name is Omar Thornton. He's a black guy. He's wearing shorts. Did he used to work there? Yeah, until I just fired him. Today? Today, just now, before he started shooting. He's chasing people out in the parking lot. Like, find all over the place. Okay. How many people got shot? I don't know. Okay, you don't know. And you're shot where? In my head. Thornton shot Douglas Scruton from nearly 40 feet away inside the warehouse. Scruton was investigating the noise that he had heard near the office area of the 77,000 square foot warehouse when he drove his forklift around a corner toward the loading dock, encountered Thornton, and was hit by several bullets. The forklift that Scruton was driving crashed into a wall and started a fire. Scruton died from his injuries. 
Thornton chased two men, Victor James and Edwin Kennison, out of the warehouse, shooting them as they ran down the driveway. Kennison died immediately. James was found by the first Manchester police officer on the scene, who put James on the hood of his car and drove him to a place where paramedics could treat him. James later died at Hartford Hospital. Three men, William Ackerman, Craig Pepin, and Francis Fazio Jr., warned fellow employees that Thornton had a gun and that they should get out of the building. Thornton chased down all three and killed them. Two men were shot dead in the southeast corner of the building in what sources referred to as a beer storage room that had a smaller space known as the Redemption Room. Another was chased down and killed at the end of a 40-foot wide path that ran through the heart of the warehouse. Jerry Rosenstein went after Thornton in a golf cart and tried to run him down and was shot several times but survived his injuries. Within three minutes of the first 911 call, police began to swarm the Mammoth Building. Employees were streaming out from the building while others lay huddled behind locked office doors inside the plant. Multiple agencies continued to stream in as ambulances began lining up to handle what was expected to be a mass casualty incident. Thornton re-entered the warehouse and made his way to the front doors, either to hunt for more victims or attempt an escape. Lobby cameras captured him walking for the doors, stopping, then turning, and hurriedly making his way back after seeing multiple squad cars make the scene. He found an empty office to hide in and made two phone calls, the first being to his mother and the second to the 911 dispatcher of the state police. In both calls, Thornton tried to justify why he took the lives of eight human beings. He told the dispatcher he could see tactical officers moving about outside and mentioned the killings would make him a popular person. It was a sad commentary from a man who evidently knew no other way to handle the issues of life other than through violence and instant gratification. Police found Thornton in a southwest corner office dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, his two guns by his side. Thornton's stated reason for committing mass murder was due to racist acts by employees and management at the warehouse, including a hangman's noose and racist graffiti. His girlfriend claimed he had taken pictures of it with his phone and shown it to her. Police found no such pictures on the phone. If Thornton had such pictures, why didn't he file a civil action against the company or lodge a complaint with the union? If he had pictures of racist acts on his phone, that would have made it an open and shut case. He had used the union to help him get a job as a driver, so Thornton knew how the system worked. What one perceives and what is real can be very different. Reality for some people is sometimes an unobtainable goal. In this case, like so many others, the cold-blooded killer must find someone to fault for their own shortcomings. Senseless deaths at the hands of a selfish, self-centered individual. What is truly frightening is how many people out in the world actually think his actions were justified. Disgusting. A memorial to the eight victims is in a clearing in the woods next to the facility. Eight men who died at the hands of evil ignorance. Well, as J.R. loves to quote from one of his favorite movies, 
I got the motive, which is money, and the body, which is dead. And that'll do it for another episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. We'd like to know what you think about this case, so leave us a comment below. And if you have a suggestion for a specific case you'd like us to cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for watching. And if you enjoyed this video, give us a like and subscribe for more gripping true crime content. Stay safe out there, and JR and I will see you on the next case. Thank you.